church family. How's everyone doing this morning? I'm Pastor Josh. I'm our pastor to uh, missions to the uh, Dominican Republic and in Haiti. Um, and I don't get to preach as much as I, as I used to when I first started here back in 2009, because back then it was only Pastor Steve and I uh, preaching. Uh, and now we have so many good speakers, but I always appreciate the times Pastor Steve lets me uh, come up here and, and uh, share a good word with you guys. Um, if you've heard me preach in the past, and maybe you haven't, I'll, I'll just let you know, I grew up an army brat, okay? I grew up uh, the son of a colonel, and we lived all over the place around the world. Uh, but I spent a lot of time around soldiers, especially when I got older. Uh, my dad got me a job in the warehouse with a couple sergeants, young sergeants. Let's just say that uh, for soldiers, cussing is a second language, right? If you've ever been around, if you've been in the military, you know what I mean, right? I'm not judging anyone for that. But soldiers were very creative in their cussing. And I was a uh, typical 80s kid, right? I, I didn't cuss much around my parents. I don't actually, my dad, you know, even though he was a soldier, they didn't cuss in the house. It wasn't that type of house. Uh, but I, I surely did around my, my friends and in school and, and uh, uh, definitely around the other soldiers, right? Um, but I kind of took that cussing language into high, my high school years and into my early 20s. Um, and my wife and I, when we got married, she didn't want that type of language in the house. So I did my best to curb it inside the house. But I got to say, it followed me a little longer than I, than I had hoped it would into life. And I'm going to share a story with you this morning about when my daughter was four. She's om- She's almost 20 now, but when my daughter was four and... I shared this story when uh, I think it was the second time I ever preached uh, here, second time I ever preached ever, uh, back in 2009. So if, you're here, if you've been here a long time, then, then you've heard this story, but I think it really fits today's message. Uh, and again, it was a story about my daughter when she was four. Now, if you don't know my daughter, and if you didn't know her back then, she was a tattler, Okay. She was the informer. So we had this Bible study at our house of Pastor Steve's kids and Mike DeLay's and, and the Shermans. And, and there was a big group of kids. There was always something that crashed or broke or somebody was crying. First person out the door was my daughter. Like this. Uh, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I'll tell you exactly what broke. This is who did it. This is how it went down. Don't listen to anybody else. I got it, right? So she was the tattler. She's the informer. We would go shopping all the time. We would hang out. She would tell on me the second we got home, right? Mom, dad got me ice cream. He got ice cream too. (laughs) Mom, dad took me to get fast food. He had two cheeseburgers. You said, don't tell you, but I did. You know, it'd be like shopping. It'd be like, Reese, this is our little secret. Let's get a cake. I get a cake. You get a cake, right? It's our little secret. No, I was told on as soon as we got home. That's just who she was. And so it was this particular morning, we were hanging out in the garage. It was a Saturday morning. Garage doors are open. I'm on one side of the garage. I think she's playing house or something on the other. But that morning, I was messing with our dog, Kai. Now, Kai was uh, a Weimar honor. And sadly, the happiest day I ever had with Kai was the day I got her. The rest of the time, she was a pain in the butt. She was a sweet dog. But she was a 75-pound pain in the butt for 11 years. So this particular morning, she's about a year or two old, very full of energy. And she, my, my wife is small, and she would just, my, she would just tour my wife around 
the neighborhood when my wife would go to, the, she would just drag her around when she would walk her. So we got her this new leash that would fit around her face, but it was really weird. I had to go around here and around the ears. And so I have Kai in front of me, and I'm trying to put this leash on, and she thinks we're playing, and we're not playing. Okay, so I'm trying to read the directions, and she's like, <laughs> and I'm trying to go, so I grab her by the ears, and I resort back to my old self, and I said, Kai, quit being so blank and stupid. I didn't say blanking. I dropped the big one. Okay? I said, quit being so blank and stupid. And I said it loud enough to where neighbors could hear me. I was really upset. Again, this is pre-pastor Josh, okay? So don't judge (laughs) as if you've never let one fly, okay? So I said this, and out of the corner of my eye, I see my my daughter just stop. She slowly turns to me, mouth on the floor, and walks to me. Just uh, a dramatic effect. I don't know why she did this. She walks to me and she says, Daddy, you said stupid. (laughs) And I said, yes, I did. And I'm sorry about that. We're going to tell your mom right away that I said only the word stupid. So, my daughter didn't know this back then, nor was it intentional because she was four, but she showed me mercy that day. See, I certainly deserved to get in big trouble with my wife for dropping the big one, right? The top prize, four-letter word, but I didn't. I didn't confess it either, I'm going to tell you honestly, because why would you want to ruin the beautiful and rare gift of mercy, Right? was bestowed upon me. So I said, thank you, and I accepted it. But it is rare, isn't it? I'm talking about mercy. It wasn't as rare back when I was a kid. It wasn't even as rare back when my daughter was a kid, you know, 15, 16 years ago. But today, it's a relic, right? Society shows no mercy. The definition of mercy is compassion, or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. I was always taught kind of an easier version, and that was mercy is not getting what you deserve. In today's cancel culture, is there any room for mercy anymore? You make one mistake, and you're done. Gone. Cut off. Out. No mercy. In my opinion... You know, social media is like the cesspool full of piranha. If you make one false move, they'll clean the flesh right off your bones. Now, if you know me, I I don't frequent social media often, and I post about as often as the Olympics come around to town, right? Uh, If you've ever asked for a friend request or whatever that is, and I didn't respond, don't get offended. I just don't go there, right? I'm just not on there very often. Don't be offended. But between my two kids, my wife, my friends, the guys at work, and other family members, I get all the social media I care to stomach. But it's sad, man, whenever I get on there. The way we treat others, even Christians, the way we treat others seems to be not so different than the rest of the world. We seem just as brutal as a whole with no mercy. It's as if someone got the ball rolling, right? And started lashing out at at people. And those people said, well, I'm not going to take this, so I'm going to lash out. And then we grew this 
this collective callous, right? And this cruel, this cruelty. And it grew to be the vast majority, it seems, of our society now. Do you agree with me? Maybe you don't. That's the way I see it. I didn't come on stage to paint you all as merciless sinners. I mean, some of you could absolutely teach me uh, about mercy, I'm sure. But also for those friends of mine and, and, and family members that, that struggle in this area, I didn't have you in my mind. This message wasn't about, ooh, I'm going to get this person, right? So don't personalize this. I, I just see a huge problem in our world, and I just want to discuss that problem today. See, I'm a firm believer that if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. And as Christians, we need to be part of the solution, and the solution is mercy and grace. See, like the simple definition I was taught as a kid about mercy, the simple definition for grace is getting what you don't deserve. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And I'm not talking about, like, getting 10 years in prison for not committing a crime, right? I'm talking about the good part of getting what you don't deserve, like maybe forgiveness for a major wrong that you did, or maybe a kind word instead of a bite, maybe a gentle correction when you go unhinged. Grace is just as absent in our culture today as mercy is. But how do we get here? Because this is not what the Lord taught us. This is not what story after story in the Bible shows us. God's word is dripping with grace and mercy cover to cover. I mean, do we take God's word seriously? You know, if not, what are we doing here? Why do we waste our, our Sunday mornings? You know, why do we waste any time? Who, who are we singing to? Who are we worshiping on Sunday mornings? Why spend time reading any of the Bible if we're not going to apply what we read. And I get it. Some of the stuff is, is difficult to understand. Sometimes I feel like a first grader opening up a calculus book. I get it. God's word can be hard to grasp sometimes, but not mercy, not grace. When you read about it in the Bible, it just jumps out at you. And I was thinking, I was like, when I was writing this message, I was like, jumps out at you, jumps out at you, jumps out at you. How does it jump out at you? Well, I'm a fat guy. So I said, it jumps out at me like that one chip in a bag of Doritos. You know, you're a fat guy like me. You know what I'm talking about. There's one chip that has like 30% of the cheese on it. You're watching a game. You're going through it, going through it. You get that one chip. (laughs) What? What was that? And I go searching through the bag for that next one. It's how grace and mercy. I'm a fat guy. Just give it to me, okay? That's what grace and mercy jumps out in the Bible to me, just like that one trip or chip. It's easy to detect, and it's everywhere in God's Word. But we're going to look at one particular story. It happens to be one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I'm being truthful about that. It's one of my stories about one of my favorite stories about Jesus in all the Bible, and it's found in John chapter eight, verses two through ten. This is during Jesus' ministry. He was traveling and and and, and teaching. A bunch wherever he went, and big crowds followed, and it really stirred up the Pharisees because they were starting to lose their grip on power and influence, and so they were beginning to get quite active about trying to trap Jesus to say or do the wrong thing to just kind of blow this whole thing up, and this is one of those instances. So again, we're going to read from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 10, and it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. So we're verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, he being Jesus. 
All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. So let's stop right there. So as Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees interrupt him. Right? It's got a bunch of people. They work their way to the front of the crowd, interrupt him, bring him a woman. Right? Caught in the act of adultery. So let's think about this for a second. How do these Pharisees, these religious leaders, how do they pick the perfect time to actually catch a woman in adultery? It doesn't say that they accused her of that, that they thought about this, that someone said, hey, I think she's been messing around, and so then they brought this woman to Jesus. It says they caught her. It smells disingenuous to me, right? It seems like a setup. See, back in those times, you couldn't just go around accusing people of crimes, especially adultery. See, in Jewish law, adultery was one of the top three worst sins a person could commit. The other two being idolatry, right, the, the worship of other gods, and murder. And the punishment for any of these top three was death. So this was a serious accusation. The Jewish codified law called the Mishnah states specifically how this death penalty is supposed to be carried out. And it's pretty horrific, especially for the man. See, for the woman, it says she's supposed to be stoned to death. And if you read the Bible a lot, there's tons of people getting stoned to death. So you can kind of be like, oh, yeah, it's not so bad. But think about that for a second. Getting stoned to death. Being hit by rock after rock after rock until you die. And just think about how slow that is, how terrible that would be. And think about if you lived in a town that didn't have many athletes. Right? Or what if you had a town with little rocks? It's going to take a while. It's terrible. But for the man, I think it's even worse. For some reason, they got real creative for the man. It says, the law says, the man is to be enclosed in dung up to his knees And a soft towel set within a rough towel is supposed to be placed around his neck in order that no mark may be made for the punishment is God's punishment. Then one man draws in one direction and another in the other direction until he be dead. That's odd. Am I right? So as I'm reading this and as I'm doing my research, my my brain, my imagination starts to take over a little bit. And and I, I just want to share this with you. This is how I see it. I see a bunch of guys that have to write these laws, right? It's a Saturday night. They're getting together. They've been there a while, but they get to the big three. They're finally ready. All right, adultery. All right, let's write the the punishments for adultery. What's it going to be, fellas? This is how I think the conversation went down. Because how do you come up with a punishment like that? Now, I'm going to use accents. Don't be offended by my accents. A, because I don't know how to do accents. I will likely change my accent in the middle of this story. But this is how I see it in my head. Okay? So the first guy starts off with, and he says, yeah, let's not do the stoning. Let's do choking to death. It's like, all right, all right. Another guy comes in. Yes, yes, choking. Choking is good. But I say we do it with a towel. Oh, the towel idea. I like it. But let's say we do it with a rough towel. All right, a rough towel is good, but... uh, what if we do a rough towel combined with a soft towel so it doesn't leave any marks? Hmm? Pretty evil, guys. Pretty evil. But then I say we have two men taking those towels, walk in opposite directions until he is choked. They say they're feeling pretty good about themselves because this is a good one, right? But then the leader, he says, hold on, time out. He hasn't said anything so far. He's been quiet. So he stands up and everybody's like, whoa, whoa, what's, what's he going to say? He's like, I got, I got one more thing, my friends. I say, 
we're missing one thing, and that is poop. <laughs> and in that group of guys, you're going to be like, did he say poop? He did say poop. He's the leader, so shh. I say we bring poop in. We make the man stand in it up to his knees. All right, just write it down. He's the leader. I don't know how it happened. That's probably way out of whack and not accurate, but that's how it happened in my head, and I wanted to share it with you because that's a weird punishment, but it's terrible all the same. My point is you just can't accuse somebody of adultery just for no reason, just like off of hearsay, right? You can't even accuse people after seeing them, like two, a man and a woman, walk out of a room, you know, like straightening up their clothes. You can't accuse them of adultery for that. You can't even accuse them if they're both laying in the bed together, fully clothed. You can't accuse them. You have to catch them, right? The Pharisees caught this woman in the very act of adultery, and there had to be more than one of them. It's very fortunate for them to catch somebody in the act of adultery. This couldn't be very common. Let me also ask you this. In this story that they brought the woman to Jesus, where's the man? Right? There's no mention of the man also being brought to Jesus. The woman can't commit adultery on herself alone, right? So why wasn't the man brought to Jesus? Well, this makes me think this was a setup, right? The Pharisees set this woman up. They hired a guy to do the deed, right? They knew where it was going to happen, when it was going to happen, and they made sure more than one person all saw it at once so their story can all be corroborated. And they can bring her and her alone to Jesus to try and trap him. Also, notice how they didn't pull Jesus aside and do this privately, right? The Pharisees did this while Jesus was teaching publicly. They wanted to humiliate both Jesus and the woman in front of as many people as possible. So, boom, they bring her to Jesus, put her, out, put her right, in his, right in front of him. The Bible says, And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they, may, they might have some charge to bring against him. So here's the conundrum the Pharisees thought they snagged Jesus with. Okay, This is where the trap, this is, this is where they thought they succeeded. They appeared to have the right kind of evidence to prove this woman's guilt, right? There had to be two or more witnesses, and their accounts of the event had to match perfectly. They seemed to have this. And as stated previously, the punishment for adultery was death. So if Jesus answered, mm, let her go, well, then he would be going against the law of Moses. This would upset a lot of people. And if Jesus answered, executor, well, not only would that go against Jesus' message of love, salvation, and mercy, it would also violate Roman law. See, at that time, only Roman rulers could hand down the death penalty. Jewish religious leaders could not. They weren't allowed to. So how did Jesus respond to this conundrum? How did, this, how did Jesus respond to these guys throwing this woman in front of her saying, what do you say? He basically ignored them. It says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So think about this for a second. These Pharisees come up with this grand scheme. Jesus is preaching. Tons of people. They work their way to the front of the crowd. Throw the, they make a big spectacle of this. Throw this woman in front of her. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. Did you see it? I saw it. We all saw it. Jesus, what do you say we do? Moses says we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? 
And he bends down and writes on the ground. Doesn't say anything. Seems like an odd thing to do, doesn't it? But let's discuss that, that movement because Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. We won't discuss what Jesus wrote in the sand because the Bible doesn't say. And as I was doing my research, there was a bunch of theologists and theorists that were going down a bunch of rabbit holes, and, and, and I just don't want to go there. I, I believe if it were vital information to us, the Bible would have included it. So we're not going to go down that rabbit hole about what Jesus wrote in the sand. We're just going to talk about what the Bible does say, and it says that he bent down. This is a humble posture, isn't it? You know, here's the woman, you know, likely thrown to the ground. She's likely sweating, crying. She's dirty. She's scared. She's believing that her life is nearing a violent and bloody and slow end. So Jesus bent down, probably to be at eye level with the woman, to ease some of her distress. Maybe to care for her and identify with this woman's suffering and shame. See, I love this about our Lord. This is who we worship. This is who we follow. Jesus doesn't choose self-preservation and deflect attention. He doesn't choose to yell at this woman in front of everybody. She did bad. You did what? You know, he doesn't also choose to, why, to yell at the Pharisees. He doesn't say, why did you bring this woman in front of me? I know what you're trying to do. He doesn't take the easy way out, put his hands up and say, I, I'm, I'm, Jew. I'm a Jew. I can't make those decisions. You guys know that, right? No, he gets at eye level with the sinner. And this is what he does for all of us. He gets at eye level with us to meet us where we're at. Verse 7 says, And as they continued, the Pharisees, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. See, the Pharisees just won't stop. They keep asking him and asking him, What are you going to do? What are you going to do? He saw it. I saw it. Jesus, hello, in front of everybody. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? They continue to push Jesus for an answer. So he stands up. Now, He's at eye level with the accusers. See, Jesus is no softy. He gets, he gets up eye level with the accusers and says, okay, I know what you guys came here for. I know your hearts, stoner. But let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw. See, in Jewish law, the witnesses to the crime, they were required to be the first to throw the stones. So Jesus is talking directly to the Pharisees. He knew their desire wasn't justice toward, you know, towards this woman for adultery. Their desire was to trap Jesus, to get him to say or do the wrong thing that it would, would get himself in trouble with the Jewish leaders, the, Romans, the Roman leaders, or to get his followers to scatter. Well, they failed. And somehow, Jesus broke neither the Jewish law nor the Roman law. He neither sentenced the woman to death nor claimed her innocence. And he neither placated to the Pharisees nor chastised them. He simply turned the trap right back on the Pharisees, and they had to decide their next move. Checkmate, right? That's what I would be thinking if I did a sweet move like that, right? But Jesus wasn't looking for the drop the mic moment that we all look for sometimes. No, it says, verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. See, our Lord said what he had to say and humbly handed the mic back to the Pharisees. He wasn't proud of himself. He likely was very uh, disappointed in the motives of the Pharisees. You know, he was 
hurting for them. He loved them too. He knew he had to put an end to this bad and embarrassing situation. In verse 9 it says, But when they heard it, they being the Pharisees, when they heard it, what Jesus had said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. So when Jesus said that, I think they were now more aware of their own sin than that of the woman's. And the older ones were the first to recognize that. Maybe some of the younger ones, they still wanted to mix it up and argue and save face. But the older ones understood what happened. And one by one, they started to leave and started to drop their stones and rocks. And once they started to leave, the younger ones followed. And the Bible says, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before them. As they all left, maybe the woman's just stood up in amazement, right? Watching her accusers literally and figuratively get smaller and smaller. She must have been shocked at the turn of events. She was seconds away from being stoned, and then nothing. Her accusers were leaving one by one. So this is the part of the story where Jesus is now, now that everybody's gone, he's going to turn and start lecturing this woman, right? Like, what are you doing? How are you living your life this way, right? This is where he comes down on her with a hammer, right, for living the way she was living. No. Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Wow. What mercy, right? What grace. Now, when Jesus says to sin no more, he's not telling her to live a perfect life, right? None of us can do that. Jesus doesn't ask this of us. He's telling her to stop living in that sin. See, the form of the charge indicates an ending to an action already started, so she was likely a common offender in sexual immorality. But do you see one of the big things that that, uh, Jesus did here? This goes for all of us who think we aren't worthy of God's love. Jesus gave this woman hope. Maybe she's been sleeping around because she believes that's all she's good for. Right? Maybe her self-worth is super low, and this is the only thing that gets her any type of attention from anybody. Who knows? But the truth is, Jesus loved her even at her worst. She wasn't asked to stop her sins so that Jesus would love her. Jesus was asked, or she was asked, so she could live her life of joy that Jesus promises all of us. This is our Lord. He wants us to live, not die every day, succumbing to sin in our life. Satan wants us to drag our sin with us, right? It's attached to us. He wants us to believe that it just comes wherever we go, and it's so hard to move. So why try to move forward? Because just sit down, stop trying to improve your life. You can't. Look at all the weight that's with you. It's too hard, right? Jesus says, ah, Let's cut those cords one by one. Don't need to drag your sin around with you for the rest of your life. Go, live, live without the weight of these sins anymore. Go. Matthew Henry sums up this section of scripture perfectly. And if you've ever heard me preach before, I always look for somebody smarter to tie a little bow on it. Matthew Henry certainly is that. He says it this way. In this matter... 
Christ attended to the great work about which he came into the world. That was to bring sinners to repentance, not to destroy, but to save. When Christ sent her away, it was with this caution, go and sin no more. Those who help to save the life of a criminal should help to save the soul with the same caution. Those are truly happy whom Christ does not condemn. Christ's favor to us in the forgiveness of past sins should prevail with us. Go then and sin no more. What mercy Jesus hands out. What grace he shows. You know, in all the Bible, Jesus never uses the word grace. He never says the word grace. We didn't have to say the word to teach it. He showed us all what grace looks like. He showed us what mercy looks like. But do we act like this? What do we do as a society? What did some of you do on social media or at the office or at home or in your neighborhood or at the ball field? Do you throw stones? If so, why? Aren't we supposed to act differently? Isn't our goal to act like Jesus? How do you think we're doing with that as a society? How are we supposed to be a light in the world when we hide in the darkness that our laptops and our cell phones afford us, right? By anonymity or by distance. How? So here's my charge to you today. Whether you struggle with showing grace and giving mercy, whether you're even a Christian or not, maybe you just came to church today just to to figure things out, or, hey, I heard about this church, or someone invited me, I'm going to come. Here's my charge to you, no matter who you are. Actively look for opportunities to show mercy and give grace to others and do it in abundance. Actively look for opportunities. Go on social media for the purpose of showing grace and mercy. Sometimes it's just showing grace and mercy to yourself. Sometimes the hardest thing is to give yourself grace, right? And here's two little secrets about grace and mercy. Number one, I'm telling you to give them because we all need them. Every single one of us. The second little secret is it feels really good to give them. Probably just as good, if not better, than receiving them. Look, I don't stand before you today as a person who has has figured this whole grace and mercy thing out, right? Unfortunately for me, I've been here so long, I have many friends many family members, and even three guys who work with me on a day-to-day basis. And they knew me, some of them knew me before I started even coming to church. You can ask Richard Paulin, Adrian Bagdadillion, or Seth Wells. Those are the three guys that work with me. You can ask them whether I consistently show mercy and hand out grace, right? Ask them. I'm sure they'd be happy to tell you that I don't. I'm sure they could say that they'd be happy to say that sometimes I can be mean. Right? Sometimes I can be impatient. Sometimes I can be crass. I'm no saint, just like many of you. I have my good days and my bad ones. I have my proud moments and those ones I like to have back and do a do-over, right? But I tell you this, and I hope Richie, Adrian, and Seth would say the same thing. I hope all my friends and family would say the same thing. When I do wrong to somebody, and I will, I'll do it again. So will you. Every single one of you will wrong somebody, probably this week. Every single one of you will let somebody down. Everybody lets people down because we're human. But when you do, own it. 
Ask for forgiveness. Ask for grace and mercy. That's what I do with my guys at work, and I hope they would tell you that. And I ask for grace and mercy because I need them so badly. We all do, church family. I give them freely because they were given to me freely by our Lord and Savior. Don't go on social media looking to rip someone apart. Or don't go into work, you know, stirring the pot. Don't kick the hornet's nest just to see everything go chaotic, right? Don't go on there spewing your political vomit just to tick someone off. Be intentional to look for those who need a kind word. Be looking for those who need your forgiveness. Come with a suitcase full of encouragement and compassion. I promise you it's going to feel a lot better than the alternative because honey tastes better than acid. Be merciful. Show grace. Be a light. Be a part of the solution. That's how we turn the tide. That's how we do it. We do it as leaders of the church. We do it. That's how it turns. If all the people in the country that claim to be Christians actually went out of their way to show mercy and grace, how much better would this world be? Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Don't be one of those people that go, you know what? Nobody ever showed me kindness or mercy or grace. So no, forget it. Nobody ever showed me that, so I'm going in there guns blasting or whatever they're saying is. Guns loaded? I don't know. You guys know what I'm saying. (laughs) Don't wait for somebody else to do it. You do it. You do it a hundred times even if they don't do it. You do it. Be different. Be merciful and show grace. As we close for today, I want to leave you with something I came across in my research for the message. And it's actually not attributed to an author, so I can't tell you who it is. It's actually not even all that eloquent, right? It's not C.S. Lewis or James Joyce. But I don't know. When I read it, it just hit me. and I liked it. It was sweet. So here it is. How I wish that there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and all out heartaches and all our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. Let me tell you, church family, visitors, that place where you can drop your shabby old coat and never put it on again, that place is the cross. That place is with Jesus. Jesus offers this to every single one of us here and at home. Remember, Jesus wants us to live. He wants us to move freely. See how good it feels to give grace and mercy. Test it. Test me. Telling you it's good living. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. You know, I'm a positive person, God. You made me that way. I'd like to see the good in people. I'd like to see what we can be and not get caught up in what we've been. I don't like to look at society and say, oh, it's 100 times worse than it's ever been. I don't believe that, God. I read in the Bible about Sodom and Gomorrah. I read stories about um, you know, women sleeping with their fathers so that their, 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 their name can care. I, I've read about some crazy stuff in the Bible, Lord. So evil is evil. Sin is sin. We've been sinners a long time. But Lord, it seems like when we get behind a computer or our cell phones, we jump on social media that we can be someone different. We can, you know, especially if we use a handle and not our name, 
we can hide behind some anonymity about some, and you could be someone different. You can be the villain. Why does it feel good to be the villain? What well, feels good, Lord, because we have you on us. And we need you to get that out. Lord, we can't do it ourselves. But we can look at your son. We can look at Jesus and we can see his actions and what he did and what he didn't do, Lord, and just try to do our best to follow it, God. And I believe today we need grace and mercy, Lord. You taught us that. Lord, I believe we can do it. I believe as a society we can show grace and mercy and turn the tide. I believe that. I truly do, Lord. It starts with our own hearts. Then it starts with our families. Then we expand that out to our friends and our circles and our community and our church. God, if we did that collectively, I think you would smile. That's all I ever want to do in life. That's all I want to ever do every single day is make you smile. I know I don't all the time. I know I don't sometimes most of the time. But Lord, you gave me breath. You gave me, you gave all of us. When our eyes open in the morning, there's a whole other chance, a whole other day to leave our shabby coat at the door and move forward. Ask for forgiveness, show grace, show mercy, and extend to others, Lord. Lord, we love you. We love you for, for who you are, God. You're so perfect. We love you that you, you love us, no matter how dirty, no matter how messed up our lives are. You love us. You always will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.